We come this morning to a fourth sermon in our series entitled, O Perfect Redemption, in which we have been seeking the Bible's answer to the question, to the controversial question, for whom did Christ die? Did Christ die on the cross for every single individual who ever lived throughout human history, or did he die on the cross only for those whom the Father chose and gave to him in eternity past, those who will eventually come to Christ and finally be saved? And one of the things that I've tried to instill early on in this sermon series is that the Bible's answer to the question of the extent of the atonement does not come as a result of focusing merely on the extent of the atonement. I know that's counterintuitive, but it's true. There are texts which cast the extent of Christ's death in more particularistic terms. We read of Jesus saving his people from their sins, Matthew 1, 21. The Son of Man giving his life as a ransom for many, Matthew 20, 28. The Good Shepherd laying his life down for his sheep and for his friends, for those whom his Father had given him. We read of the Bridegroom giving himself up for his bride and purchasing the church with his own blood. But there are also texts which cast the extent of Christ's death in more universalistic terms. We read of Jesus giving his life as a ransom for all in 1 Timothy 2.6, and that he's the propitiation for our sins, not ours only, but also for those of the whole world, 1 John 2.2. So understanding how these texts harmonize does require that we get a proper grasp on the context of each of those individual passages. But it also requires that we get a proper grasp on the broader context of all of Scripture's teaching, not just on the extent of the atonement, but also on the design and nature of the atonement. To whom the atonement extends is a function of what God designed the atonement for and is a function of what the atonement is. And so the clear biblical teaching on the design and nature of the atonement helps us interpret the sometimes less clear teaching on the extent of the atonement. And so after an introductory message that oriented us to the discussion, we, we've spent the last two sermons in our series focused on God's design for the atonement. In the first of those, we, we paid special attention to the unity of the persons of the Trinity, the argument was that because the Father and the Son and the Spirit are perfectly united in their essence, the three persons of the Trinity must be perfectly united both in their saving intentions and their saving acts. We can't have the Father aiming to save some, the Son aiming to save others, and the Spirit aiming to save still another group. By virtue of sharing an identical nature, the Father, Son, and Spirit share an identical will. And so what the Father intends in sending the Son into the world, what the Son intends in undertaking His atoning mission, what the Spirit intends in applying the Son's work are identical. They are the exact same intention. They are the exact same design. Now, last week, we gave ourselves to examining precisely what that intention was. So given that the persons of the Trinity are united in their saving intention, what does Scripture teach about what they intended the cross to accomplish? What is it that the Scriptures say Christ has come into the world to do? And the answer that Scripture consistently and uniformly identifies the Trinity's unified intention for the atonement as exclusively salvific. 1 Timothy 1.15, it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, not to make sinners savable, not to make salvation possible, not to make salvation available, not to make provision for salvation, but actually to save sinners. 
And we saw that there were a couple of reasons that that's important. First, God always accomplishes his intentions. Whatever the triune God intends or designs or purposes in the atonement, that must be accomplished. God is absolutely sovereign. He says in Isaiah 46.10, I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Job says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. And so if God always accomplishes his intentions, when we understand that his intention for the atonement is that by it Christ would save sinners, then we must confess either that the atonement saves all for whom it was accomplished or the triune God fails of his intention. The second reason intention is important for the discussion of the extent of the atonement is because those who say Christ died for all people without exception, because they don't want to say that all people without exception will finally be saved, invariably they say that Christ did not die to save sinners, but to make salvation possible or to make men savable. So when Jesus says, this is the example I used towards the end of last week's sermon, when Jesus says in John 6, 51, that he gives his flesh for the life of the world, proponents of a universal atonement seize on that word world and insist that this means that the atonement was for all without exception. But when you ask them what it means to give life and whether they think all people without exception will have this life, They say, oh, no, 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 I'm not a universalist. I mean, this means that Christ makes eternal life available for the world. See, if Christ says he comes to give life to the world and all without exception don't come into possession of life, it's concluded that Christ has not come to actually give life to the world, but to provide life, to make it possible for them to have life. See, now the cross doesn't give life like Jesus says. It makes life possible. By aiming to universalize the extent of the atonement, they fatally undermine the efficacy of the atonement. Efficacious accomplishment gets downgraded to mere possibility-making. And the result is we get unthinkable statements like the one that I quoted last week from Bruce Ware, who says, I'll say it again, we cannot speak correctly of Christ's death as actually and certainly saving the elect. No, even here, he says, the payment made by his death on behalf of the elect renders their salvation possible. Here's another from Lewis Sperry Chafer, longtime professor at Dallas Theological Seminary. He says, Christ's death does not save either actually or potentially. Rather, it makes all men savable. I mean, what what a frightening thing to say. I can't imagine saying the phrase and intending the words, Christ's death does not save, and not getting struck by lightning or something, not getting eaten by worms like Herod. That's an astounding thing to say. But praise God, that is not what Scripture says. And we saw last week how doggedly insistent the New Testament is on presenting both the intent and the actual effect of the atonement as salvific, as saving. The Word of God speaks of the atonement as that by which God intends to secure salvation, not merely provide for it, to accomplish redemption, not merely to make it possible to satisfy wrath, to reconcile God and sinners, to redeem slaves into freedom, actually to save. Christ's death does save. Actually, Dr. Chafer, his death does actually and certainly save the elect. Dr. Ware, and so follow me here. If God's intentions must certainly come to pass, And if his intention for the atonement is not to make provisions or possibilities, but actually to save, then all those for whom Christ died must certainly be saved. And since not all are saved, 
Christ's atonement is particular and not universal. The extent of the atonement is a function of the intent of the atonement. But as I've been saying, it's not just the intent of the atonement. It's not just the design of the atonement that helps inform our understanding of the extent of the atonement. It's also the nature of the atonement itself. And we saw a bit of a preview of that last week because we didn't just focus on the salvific intent of the atonement. We also saw that everything the atonement was said to intend to accomplish, Scripture also says it actually did effectively accomplish. And so we saw redemption, expiation, Definitive sanctification, reconciliation, salvation, regeneration, justification, adoption, progressive sanctification, and glorification are all said to be both intended and accomplished by the atonement. And if you need a review of that, you can see the last message. But that's where I want to go next in this series. We need to press further into the nature of the atonement, not just the design, but what Christ actually accomplished in his death on the cross. And when we understand what Scripture teaches concerning what the atonement is, we'll have a clear grasp on for whom it was accomplished. You say, imagine you're you're at the sink one day and your back is turned to the room and one of your kids brings you something and says, Mommy, Daddy, who is this for? What's the first thing you're going to do. Maybe, maybe you'll turn around and just look, but if you were going to ask a question, you'd say, what is it? Who is this for? Well, what is it? The nature of the thing determines the extent of the thing, those for whom it was designed. Now, the most fundamental overarching description one can give to the atonement is that it is a work of penal substitution. Write that down. Now, that's a phrase, penal substitution, that means that on the cross, Jesus suffered the penalty, penal, for the sins of his people as a substitute for them, substitution. Jesus suffered the penalty for the sins of his people as a substitute for them. When man sinned against God, our sin erected a legal and a relational barrier between us and God. We have broken God's law, and therefore we have incurred guilt and we are required to pay the penalty of spiritual death. We've offended God's holiness, and therefore God's wrath is aroused against our sin. That leaves us alienated from God. We who were created for fellowship and communion with God are now hostile to God, enemies of God. And not only that, but we are spiritual slaves. Scripture says we are in bondage to sin and to death by nature. And if there is going to be any redemption from sin, if there's going to be any reconciliation to God, our sin must be atoned for. But the miserable state of man's natural condition is that we are spiritually dead. We're totally depraved. Sin has so infected the very core of our being that there is nothing we can do to pay the penalty for our own sin. But God, in his great love, has appointed the Lord Jesus Christ to stand in the place of sinners, to bear our sin, to carry our guilt, to receive our punishment, and thereby to satisfy the righteous wrath of God on our behalf. That is penal substitution. And the doctrine is testified to everywhere in Scripture. I'm I'm going to, in a couple of weeks, devote an entire sermon to penal substitution. But here, just two verses. 1 Peter 2.24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And then, quoting Isaiah 53, Peter adds, For by his wounds you were healed. The Lord Jesus Christ bore the punishment of the sins of his people and thereby brought us blessing. And then Isaiah 53, 5, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. This is penal substitution, a substitute standing in my place and paying the penalty that I was demanded to pay. 
But if we drill down further and, and we ask, what precisely is the nature or the character of this substitutionary atonement? What exactly did Christ accomplish on the cross? We see at least four motifs emerge, and they correspond precisely to the various ways that our sin has broken the relationship between us and God. So first, by standing in the place of sinners, Scripture teaches that Jesus paid for our sin and our guilt by offering himself as an expiatory sacrifice to God. Now, expiation just means to take away sin, okay? just means he took it away. And so to say that the atonement was an expiatory sacrifice is to say that Christ paid the penalty by taking our sins away from us and bearing them in himself. So expiatory sacrifice. Second, we find that the atonement is a work of propitiation. It's a propitiatory sacrifice. And propitiation just means to satisfy, to appease. And so Christ fully satisfied the wrath of God against our sin by bearing its full exercise in himself. Third, the cross is a work of reconciliation in which the alienation between man and God is overcome and peace is made through the blood of our substitute. And fourth, it's a work of redemption in which we who were enslaved to sin are ransomed by the price of the Lamb's precious blood. And each of these four motifs, sacrifice, propitiation, reconciliation, and redemption, each one is a different facet of Christ's substitutionary work, and therefore each is worthy of our reflection and consideration. And so my plan is to devote an entire sermon to each one of those over the next several weeks. And what we're going to find is, here's the key thought, what we're going to find is when we hold firmly to the biblical definitions of the terms for atonement, it becomes unmistakable that the nature of the atonement is one of efficacious accomplishment and not one of potentiality or provision. Which, which is to say, when the Bible says that Christ's atoning death was an expiatory sacrifice, it means that atonement itself, the atonement itself, actually took away our sins and didn't just make it possible for them to be taken away by some later act of ours. When Scripture says that the atonement was a propitiation, it means that Christ's death effectively and not merely potentially appeased God's wrath. His death actually reconciled God to sinners. It didn't make God merely reconcilable. It actually accomplished our freedom from slavery to sin and did not merely make us redeemable. So in short, we're going to find once again that the cross saved sinners. It did not merely provide salvation or make salvation possible. And therefore, everyone for whom Christ died must have their sins taken away. Everyone for whom he died must have the wrath of God against their sins extinguished. Everyone for whom he died must be reconciled to God. Everyone must be released from their slavery into the freedom of sin and salvation. And since we know that not all will finally be saved, we will find that the atonement is particular and not universal. An atonement of unlimited power and efficacy must necessarily be restricted to those who actually enjoy its benefits. I'll say it again. An, an atonement of unlimited power and efficacy must necessarily be restricted to those who enjoy its benefits. And who enjoys its benefits? The elect alone and not all without exception. Well, with the time we have left this morning, we're going to look at the first of those motifs, that of sacrifice. And we're going to do it in two broad stages. First, we'll consider Christ's atonement as an expiatory sacrifice, looking specifically at how the atonement of Christ is the fulfillment of the sacrificial system of the Old Testament and what significance that has for our understanding of what took place on the cross for us. Second, will specifically consider the efficacy and the particularity inherent in the concept, the biblical concept of sacrifice, which will have bearing on our understanding of the extent of Christ's sacrifice. 
So in the first place, then, let's examine the significance of the fact that Scripture characterizes the penal substitutionary atonement of Christ as a sacrifice offered to take away sins. In Ephesians 5.2, Paul exhorts the church to walk in love, and then he appeals to the atoning death of Christ as the ground for that exhortation. He says, walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. The author of Hebrews employs this imagery throughout his letter, and in Hebrews 9.26, he says, But now once, at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. In Hebrews 10, 11, and 12, we read, Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. So this imagery of Jesus' death as a sacrificial offering characterizes his atonement, but it's rooted not merely in the New Testament. I just read three New Testament passages, but that's not where it starts. That terminology draws from the history of Israel and the Old Testament's prescriptions for sacrificial worship to God. The book of Hebrews explicitly states that Christ's atoning work was the fulfillment of the Levitical sacrifices instituted under the Mosaic Covenant. More than that, that Christ's death itself was the, the thing after which the Levitical sacrifices were a copy. A lot of times we think, well, Christ's death is the, the, or the, the sacrifices are, the, are the, the main thing in the Old Testament, and then Christ comes to die as an illustration of those. No, Hebrews says that Christ's death, his sacrifice, was the original, and the Levitical sacrifices were the copies. So because of that, if we're going to understand the significance of Christ's death as sacrifice, we have to understand the original context in which it developed, which the concept of sacrifice was given to God's people. And for that, we turn to everybody's favorite book, the book of Leviticus. <laughs> now, Leviticus begins right where Exodus ends. The tabernacle has just been completed. The glory of God has come and filled the tabernacle, signifying that the spiritual presence of Yahweh is now dwelling in the midst of his people. And in fact, the Hebrew word for tabernacle, mishkan, literally means dwelling place. And so the presence of God is a key theme in Leviticus. The phrase before the Lord or in the presence of the Lord appears 59 times in the book of Leviticus. And Leviticus also teaches that this God who is present is fundamentally holy. The words for holy and holiness appear 150 times in 27 chapters, more frequently than any other book of the Bible. So right from the outset, the question that Leviticus seeks to answer is how can the holy presence of God dwell in the midst of a sinful people? And the answer that God gives is that sinners are to make sacrifices to the Lord that will atone for their sin and render them accepted in his presence. Look at chapter 1, verse 3. The worshiper shall offer it, that is his sacrifice, at the doorway of the tent of meeting that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering that it may be accepted for him to make atonement on his behalf. So right there, you've got penal substitutionary atonement by sacrifice. The sacrificial animal pays the penalty of death as a substitute for the life of the sinner. And the pinnacle of the sacrificial system was the ceremonies of the day of, the, of atonement. So turn to chapter 16 of Leviticus. Once a year and only once a year, the high priest of Israel and only the high priest of Israel was to enter the Holy of Holies the innermost sanctum in the nation, into God's immediate presence. And he was to do this, Leviticus 16, verse 17, in order to make atonement for himself and for his household and for all the assembly of Israel. So God commanded the high priest to offer two goats 
on this day. Verses 8 to 10 tell us that one goat was to be sacrificed to God as a sin offering. The other goat was to be kept alive to bear the sins of the people and to be banished from the presence of the Lord. The blood of the sacrificial goat was to be sprinkled on the mercy seat. The mercy seat was the covering of the Ark of the Covenant and was the place where atonement was made. Then the high priest dealt with the scapegoat. There was the goat of sacrifice, sprinkle its blood on the altar, on the mercy seat. Look with me about at, the, with, at the scapegoat in verses 21 and 22. It says, Then Aaron, who is the high priest, then Aaron shall lay both of his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the sons of Israel and all their transgressions in regard to all their sins. And he shall lay them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who stands in readiness. The goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to a solitary land, and he shall release the goat in the wilderness. So by laying his hands on the head of the scapegoat and confessing all of Israel's sins over it, the high priest was symbolizing that God had reckoned the sin and guilt of the people to be transferred to the goat. Instead of bearing their own iniquity and being banished from the holy presence of God, Israel's sin was imputed to a substitute. The innocent scapegoat bears their sin, their guilt, and their punishment of the people, and he's banished in their place. So by sprinkling the sacrificial blood of one substitute on the mercy seat, and by virtue of the imputation of sin to a second substitute, Israel's sins are atoned for and the people are released from punishment. Another picture of Old Testament sacrifice, maybe the only one that rivals the Day of Atonement in significance for Israel was the Passover. Turn back to Exodus chapter 12. The way that God redeemed Israel out of slavery in Egypt becomes a picture of how he'll finally redeem all of his people out of slavery to sin and death. And as he was about to send the 10th plague on Egypt, God had promised to kill every firstborn child and animal throughout the land. And though Israel had been spared from the first nine plagues, they were not automatically spared from the 10th. In order to be spared from God's wrath, he required each family in Israel to kill an unblemished lamb and to put its blood on the doorposts of the house. He says in verse 13, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So the Passover lamb died as a substitutionary sacrifice in the place of firstborn children of the Jews. The wrath of God was turned away by the blood of a spotless lamb that was slain in their place. And Israel, verse 24, was to observe this event as an ordinance for you and your children forever to commemorate the Lord's forgiving their sins by a substitutionary sacrifice. Now, both the Levitical sacrifices as epitomized in the Day of Atonement and the rite of the Passover vividly picture the sacrificial work of the Lord Jesus Christ. You can hear it already as I speak those words, but listen to the way that the text makes this explicit. The Passover meal was the setting of Jesus' last supper with his disciples when he instituted the new covenant, declaring that his body would be broken for them. And that the cup which was poured out for them was, he says in Luke twenty two twenty, the new covenant in my blood. So in this way, at this Passover meal, Christ was declaring that his death, the breaking of his body and the pouring out of his blood would be the fulfillment of the feast of the Passover. One writer said, whereas the old Passover focused on the body and blood of a lamb slain as a penal substitutionary sacrifice for the redemption of Israel, the Lord's Supper focuses on the body and blood of Christ who gave himself as a penal substitutionary sacrifice for his people. Jesus is, as John the Baptist heralded in John 1, the Lamb of God 
who takes away the sin of the world. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, Peter says that the people of God have not been redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold, but they've been redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, the text says, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, a clear reference to the Passover sacrifice. And then Paul states it explicitly in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, when he says, for Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Jesus is our Passover lamb. And so just as the blood of the slain sacrificial lamb protected Israel from the execution of God's judgment, so also does the blood of the slain sacrificial lamb Jesus protect his people from his father's wrath against their sin. But Jesus isn't only the fulfillment of the Passover sacrifice. He's also the fulfillment of the Levitical priesthood and the sacrificial system. So turn with me to Hebrews chapter 9. It's important to say that while God graciously allowed himself to be temporarily satisfied by Israel's sacrifices, those sacrifices were never truly final or perfect. Hebrews 9.9 9 says Levitical sacrifices cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience. Hebrews 10.1-4 says, For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Verse 4, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Well, that's why there had to be a greater and more perfect sacrifice that would put away sin once for all. And that's precisely what Christ's sacrifice did. Hebrews 9, verses 11 and 12. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, he entered then through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. We read it before in chapter 10, verses 11 and 12. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for all time, for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. Hebrews 10, 14, for by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. So the parallel imagery is astounding. Just as the high priest entered beyond the veil into the most holy place, so also Christ, Hebrews 4.14 says, is the great high priest who has passed through the heavens and entered beyond the veil of the heavenly tabernacle into the very presence of God himself. And when Christ and while the high priest sprinkled the blood of the sacrificial goat on the mercy seat to make atonement, the Lord Jesus sprinkled his own blood. And inasmuch as his blood is infinitely more valuable than the blood of bulls and goats, inasmuch as his blood speaks better than the blood of Abel, Hebrews 12, he secured, the text says, an eternal redemption. The Lord Jesus Christ, our great mediator and substitute, is the fulfillment both of the high priests and the sacrifice. He is both offerer and offering. As Hebrews 9.14 says, he offered himself without blemish to God. And it doesn't stop there. Not only is Jesus the fulfillment of both the high priest and the sacrifice, he's also the fulfillment even of the mercy seat. The high priest was commanded to sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat where God's holy presence was uniquely manifest for fellowship with Israel. So Exodus 25, 22 says, there at the mercy seat, I will meet with you and from above the mercy seat, I will speak to you. I'll meet you there. I'll speak to you there. Leviticus 16, 2 says that if anybody comes in to approach the mercy seat, apart from those specific strict instructions, he's going to die. Because God says, for I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. 
This is where God shows up. This is where God speaks. This is where God meets his people. And so the, the holy place, the, the most holy place is a place that can't be entered into except in the strictest of circumstances by the most qualified in Israel. And yet in Romans 3, verse 25, the apostle Paul declares that God displayed Jesus as a propitiation in his blood. And when he uses that word propitiation, it's actually the, the Greek word for propitiatory, the, the word that translates the Hebrew word kaporeth, which is the same word for the mercy seat. So just as the mercy seat was the place where atonement was made and where God's wrath against sin was averted, so now Jesus is the place where atonement is made and God's wrath against sin is averted. The Lord Jesus Christ is the high priest who offers. He is the sacrifice that is offered, and he's the mercy seat upon which the sacrifice is offered. And still more, Jesus is also the perfect fulfillment of the scapegoat. Just as the high priest confessed Israel's sins over the head of the scapegoat, such that their sins were laid on the goat, so also has the Father caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon him, Isaiah 53, 6. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. The Father imputed to Jesus every sin of every one the Father had given him so that truly it can be said, 1 Peter 2.24, that he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. So as the midday sun is shrouded in darkness, the Father is, as it were, laying his hands on the head of his son, the scapegoat, and confessing over him the sins of his people. And as a result of bearing their sin, the son is banished from the presence of the father, leaving him to suffer, as Hebrews 13, 12 says, outside the gate. And to experience the terrifying abandonment of his father, leaving him to cry out those wretched words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God, the son who from eternity was the apple of his father's eye, who was his ever-present companion, in whom his soul always was well-pleased, was pleased to crush him, the text says. He, that one was forsaken by his father as he laid upon Christ the iniquity of us all and abandoned him to bear the unleashed fury of Almighty God in the place of his people. Outside the camp, away from the presence of the Lord and from his people was where the carcasses of the sacrifices were to be disposed of. Leviticus 4.12, Hebrews 13.11. Outside the camp was that lonely place where the leper was banished and isolated to bear his shame. Leviticus 13.46. Outside the camp was where the blasphemer was to be stoned. Leviticus 24, 14 and 23. And it's to that place of shame and isolation that the Son of God, the great high priest, was banished so that we, guilty, treasonous, sinful sons and daughters of Adam, might be welcomed into the holy presence of God himself. And I would be remiss if upon the proclamation of that good news, if I didn't take the opportunity to address those who sit here outside of Christ this morning. Dear sinner, if the Son of God humbled himself to such a place of degradation and shame, will you not humble yourself before his cross? Will you not own that you are a sinner that you've offended this holy God by breaking his law and that because the wages of sin is death, that you deserve to perish eternally for your crimes. 
Will you not confess that there is absolutely nothing that you could do to pay for your sins? No good works, no religious duties that you could perform to earn favor with this holy God. Friend, I plead with you, if you are not a believer in Jesus this morning, humble yourself and come to him who has died for sinners. Turn from your sins and put your trust in the the precious blood of this spotless lamb slain to save you from sin and death and hell and to deliver you into the presence of God clothed in his own righteousness. Come to Christ in repentance, repentance and faith and he will have you. He will receive you this morning. There can be no mistaking it. Christ's death was an expiatory sacrifice, the fulfillment of the sacrificial system of the Old Testament, which was instituted to provide atonement for Israel's sins. But as we aim to bring those realities to bear on our present discussion, the question we're trying to answer, namely how the nature of the atonement as sacrifice bears on the question of the extent of the atonement, we need to look once again at the concept of atonement by sacrifice in the context of its Old Testament roots. I just showed you that the two are linked. Now let's study the nature of sacrifice and see what conclusions we can make from old to new. The fundamental reason for that is because, again, the concept of atonement doesn't begin in the New Testament. When the New Testament presents the work of Christ in terms of atonement, in terms of sacrifice, in terms of expiation, these are concepts that already have definitions in Scripture. And so the original audience of the New Testament gospels and epistles would have heard these words for atonement and for sacrifice, and they would have understood them to be in fundamental continuity with the categories of the Old Testament sacrificial system. And though, of course, there isn't a one-to-one comparison, right? Jesus' sacrifice is better than the Levitical sacrifices. Nevertheless, except for where there are explicit discontinuities revealed, we ought to understand that what was true of atonement by expiatory sacrifice in the Old Testament is true of atonement by expiatory sacrifice in the work of Christ. And what we find is, from the moment the notion of atonement was revealed by God to his people, It has always signified that which is inherently efficacious on behalf of particular persons. And so when the New Testament employs the same terminology to describe the atonement that Christ accomplished by his death, it's right for us to regard his atonement with that same inherent efficacy and particularity. So that's our second point. First, we saw Christ's atonement as sacrifice. Now I want to examine the inherent efficacy and particularity of the concept of sacrifice. Now, what do I mean by those two terms? By efficacious, I mean that atonement always accomplishes its intentions, taking away sin, of satisfying wrath, of reconciling God and and sinners, and so on. It doesn't mean, to be inefficacious would be to say that it makes things merely possible or provisional. To say that the atonement is efficacious is is to say that an expiatory sacrifice actually expiates. It actually takes away sins. And by particular, I mean that the atonement is always accomplished on behalf of a particular definite, specific group of individuals. It is never something that is accomplished for people in general or indefinitely for all persons without exception. It's just never been that way. So let's look at some key examples from early in the Old Testament, some cases returning to some of the passages we've just visited before. Let's start again at Exodus 12 with the Passover. As the Passover lamb dies As a substitutionary sacrifice in the place of the firstborn children of the Jews, we can observe both the particularity and the efficacy of this expiatory sacrifice. Its particularity is made plain in a number of ways. In the first place, each family was not only to slay a Passover lamb and put its blood on the doorposts, they were also to eat the lamb together as a family. And the amount of lamb that they were to eat 
was to be directly proportionate to the number of people in each household. So chapter 12, verse 4 says, Now if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his neighbor nearest to his house are to take one according to the number of persons in them. According to what each man should eat, you are to divide the lamb. So that is to say, each slain lamb atoned for the particular individuals for whom it was killed. One commentator says, each lamb served a specific body of people and redeemed a prescribed household. And besides this, instructions for the escape of God's judgment were not given to all who were dwelling in Egypt. They were given to the children of Israel alone. Multiple times throughout the plagues, chapter 9, verse 4, chapter 11, verse 7, we read that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. So too in the 10th plague, everyone throughout the land of Egypt was subject to God's righteous wrath, but only Israel, only the people of God were given a means of atonement. It's not as if God came and said to the Egyptians, hey, I'm going to be striking every firstborn child. So if you want in on this, slay a lamb, put the blood on the doorpost, and I won't strike you either. There's not any, any evidence whatsoever that that was made known to, to Egypt at all. The only way that people were going to escape is by this ritual of putting the blood on the doorpost and those instructions were given to Israel alone. There is particularity in the Passover. The efficacy of the Passover is, is self-evident. Uh, Yahweh's wrath indeed broke over Egypt that night. Chapter 12, verses 29 and 30. Now it came about at midnight that Yahweh struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of cattle. Pharaoh arose in the night and he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was no home where there was not someone dead. But just as God had promised in verse 23, when he sees the blood on the lintel and the two doorposts, Yahweh will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to come into your houses and to smite you. So the Passover sacrifice was both particular and it was effective. Israel and Israel alone was spared from the wrath that others were not spared from. Turn now to the book of Leviticus, back to chapter 1, where we said earlier that the concepts of sacrifice and atonement, these figure especially prominently. I read verses 3 and 4 of chapter 1 earlier. I want to read it again. It says, He, that is the worshiper of Yahweh, the one seeking atonement, he shall offer it, that is, offer his sacrifice, at the doorway of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before Yahweh. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, that it may be accepted for him to make atonement on his behalf. Note, first, the particularity of this offering. The worshiper himself was to bring the animal to be sacrificed. And when he brought it, uh, for the daily sacrifices like this, he, he didn't just hand it over to the priest and go back to his tent like, okay, here's the goat, see ya. No, the law tells us that unless he was bringing a small bird, the worshiper himself was the one who killed the animal. Each individual Israelite gutted this animal, cut it up in pieces, washed its entrails and its legs, and then gave it to the priest to sprinkle the blood on the altar, and the priest would also put its carcass on the fire. But the worshiper himself killed the sacrificial animal. Uh, and that made the entire spectacle an overwhelmingly personal event. The offering of the sacrifice was always connected to the specific worshiper who offered it. We also see the particularity and the very personal nature of sacrifice in the practice of laying one's hand on the head of the offering. When that was happening, the worshiper was identifying himself in the most intimate way with this sacrificial animal, symbolically transferring the sins for which he was seeking atonement onto the head of this substitutionary sacrifice. This sacrifice took away this worshiper's sins in particular. And we also see the particularity in the repetition of the personal language used. Look at, again at verse 4. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering 
that it may be accepted for him to make atonement on his behalf. It was for this worshiper and on his behalf that this substitutionary transfer of sin took place. It was unmistakably particular. And the efficacy of this sacrificial atonement is also plain. Offering this sacrifice would, in fact, make atonement for the worshiper. It wouldn't make the atonement merely possible for him upon the fulfillment of a later condition. No, look at verse 9 of chapter 1. It would be an offering by fire of a soothing aroma to Yahweh, which is to say God would be pleased by it. His demands would be satisfied by it. God doesn't receive as a soothing aroma that which does not avail with him. This is an efficacious atonement. Again, verse 4, he shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering that it may be accepted for him. It it doesn't say that the offering would make the worshiper acceptable. Verse 3, that he may be accepted. Not that he may be acceptable. Not that that atonement would win God the right to accept the worshiper if he fulfilled certain conditions that God would prescribe later. This atoning sacrifice would actually make the worshiper accepted in Yahweh's presence because it would have decisively dealt with his sin. And we see both particularity and efficacy not only in these opening verses concerning the burnt offerings, but throughout the rest of the instructions for the Levitical offerings as well. Throughout chapter 4, which deals with the the sin offering. We see the same prescription for the worshiper to lay his hands on the head of the sacrifice. Verse 4, verse 15, verse 24, verse 29, 33. Lay the hand on the head, which symbolizes this intimate identification of the worshiper with the sacrifice, as well as the transfer of the person's sins to the substitute. Again, this particular animal is offered in the place of this particular sinner for his particular sins. It's also true for the offerings on behalf of the entire congregation. Chapter 4, verse 20, verses 20 and 21 speak of atonement by sacrifice that is, quote, the sin offering for the assembly. For the assembly, that is, this atonement is accomplished on behalf of the assembly of Israel alone and not for the surrounding nations. We see particularity explicitly with the guilt offering in chapter 5. Verses 5 and 6 link the sacrifice to an individual's confession of specific sins. Verse 5, he shall confess that in which he sinned. Verse 6, he shall also bring his guilt offering to Yahweh for his sin, which he has committed. So confession of particular sins and the bringing of a sacrifice were inextricably linked. We see the same in chapter 5, verse 10. So the priest shall make an atonement on his behalf for his sin, which he has committed, and it will be forgiven him. We have identical sentences in verse 13, a similar one in verse 18. It's everywhere. So there's a Bible scholar named Gary Williams who did a literary analysis of Leviticus 4 and 5, where he concluded this, quote, the the references to specific offenses committed by particular people at the beginning and end of each of the descriptions of the purification offerings are far from accidental. They deliberately employ elegantly varied forms of expression to make the same point again and again. The sacrifices were offered for and were effective for the specific offenses of particular people. We also see that these sacrifices weren't just particular, but they were efficacious. More than half of the occurrences of the Hebrew word for atonement in the entire Bible occur in Leviticus. And In many of those occurrences, the word appears without any modifying phrase. The text will just say, so the priest shall make atonement, period, and move on. But there are also many occurrences in which the writer will use the word atonement and then make some comment about the atonement just spoken of. And here's the key thought. Every time any comment is made about atonement, it is always and uniformly a statement of the atonement's efficacy. So chapter 4 Verse 20, so the priest shall make atonement for them and they will be forgiven. 
Verse 26, thus the priest shall make atonement for him in regard to his sin, and he will be forgiven. Verse 31, thus the priest shall make atonement for him, and he will be forgiven. Verse 35, thus the priest shall make atonement for him in regard to his sin, which he has committed, and he will be forgiven. Chapter 5, verse 10, so the priest shall make an atonement on his behalf for his sin, which he has committed, and it will be forgiven him. Verse 13, so the priest shall make atonement for him concerning his sin, which he has committed from one of these, and it will be forgiven him. Verse 16, he shall make restitution, and the, it says the priest shall then make atonement for him with the ram of the guilt offering, and it will be forgiven him. Verse 18, so the priest shall make atonement for him concerning his error in which he sinned unintentionally and didn't know it, and it will be forgiven him. Chapter 6, verse 7, the priest shall make atonement for him before the Lord, and he will be forgiven for any one of the things which he may have done to incur guilt. Chapter 12, verse 8, and the priest shall make atonement for her, and she shall be clean. Chapter 14, verse 20, thus the priest shall make atonement for him, and he will be clean. That repetition would have had its intended effect. It had been indelibly impressed upon the mind of the faithful Israelite that when the priest made atonement, he actually atoned. That the atonement was efficacious. That it brought about its intended effect of cleansing and of forgiveness of sins. And we can't forget about the Day of Atonement. As we said before, the pinnacle of all these sacrifices we see the same efficacy and particularity here in chapter 16 for the Day of Atonement. Now, like the Passover, the efficacy of the Day of Atonement sacrifices is virtually self-evident, right? The sins of the assembly were not made forgivable on the Day of Atonement. Just as surely as the goat of sacrifice died, just as surely as its blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat, just as surely as the scapegoat was banished never to return to the, into the presence of the camp, just as surely Israel's sins had been taken away by the act of substitutionary sacrifice. Look at Leviticus 16, verse 30. It is on this day that atonement shall be made for you to cleanse you. You will be clean for all, from all your sins before Yahweh. Say, wait a minute. I, I thought it was impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Yes, that's true, but that doesn't mean that these sacrifices were inefficacious. The text says atonement shall be made and Israel will be clean. No, it simply means that these sacrifices derived their efficacy from Christ's final sacrifice on the cross, which these sacrifices anticipated and pointed to and were copies of. There was nothing in the blood of bulls and goats themselves that could genuinely take away sins, but on the basis of the coming work of Messiah, which these sacrifices prefigured, God graciously allowed himself to be temporarily propitiated by these sacrifices, which he prescribed for his people. You will be clean. Efficacy. Further, the particularity of the Day of Atonement sacrifices is evident as well. Look at verse 16. The high priest makes atonement, quote, because of the impurities of the sons of Israel and because of their transgressions in regard to all their sins. Verse 17, he makes atonement for himself and for his household and for all the assembly of Israel. This was not a sacrifice offered on behalf of the Gentile world. There was no yearly atonement that accomplished forgiveness and cleansing for the Moabites and the Philistines. Verse 21, Aaron laid his hands on the head of the scapegoat and confessed over it all the iniquities of the sons of Israel and all their transgressions in regard to all their sins. The sins of the Midianites and the Egyptians were not imputed to the scapegoat. This was a definite particular atonement for the people of God, for the covenant community, and for them alone. And so in the New Testament, Christ, the head of the new covenant, comes to make atonement for the covenant community and them alone. What's it all mean? 
It means from the very beginning, when God first revealed to his people the means by which they would make atonement for their sins so they could be forgiven from the beginning. The very concept of atonement itself was inherently particular and efficacious. It was an atonement that atoned. And it was an atonement that atoned on behalf of particular people. And so when we come to the New Testament and we're told that the work of Christ on behalf of sinners was an expiatory sacrifice, that it was a work of atonement that takes away sins, we must hear in those words the very same note of inherent efficacy and particularity that always defined those concepts. And so when Hebrews 9.26 says, but now once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, that does not mean, it cannot mean that he came to make it possible for all without exception to have their sins be put away. No, a universal, inefficacious atonement is entirely foreign to the biblical definition of expiatory sacrifice. Biblically speaking, atonement is always particular and atonement is always efficacious. And so Hebrews 9.26 means exactly what it sounds like it means. When Christ offered himself as a sacrifice to God, as a fragrant aroma, when the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world was slain on the cross, he actually put sin away. He actually bore our sins. He actually carried our sorrows. And he actually bore our sins. He actually carried our sorrows. He didn't potentially bear the sins of everyone without exception, which is to say he didn't bear the sins of no one in particular. He bore our sins. He bore his people's sins. What are we saying? My name is graven on his hands. My name was written on his heart. And that means that he did not bear the sins of those who bear their own sins and perish eternally for them. He did not put away sin by the sacrifice of himself for those whose sins are not actually put away. He didn't take away the sins of those who will suffer for their sins for eternity in the lake of fire. No, Isaiah 53, 12, he himself bore the sin of many. The atonement is an efficacious atonement. And that is where all your hope lies, Christian. All your hope is bound up in an atonement that atones, in an expiation that takes away sin, in a propitiation that satisfies wrath, in a reconciliation that brings God and men together, in a redemption that frees from sin. If you don't have an atonement that does that, you don't have an atonement. And you must die in your sins unless you can come up with something that can activate the potential. Oh, terrible news that is for us who know ourselves unable to do any spiritual good whatsoever. The atonement is an efficacious atonement. And precisely because it is an efficacious atonement, it is a particular atonement. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you that Christ has atoned, that he's not started things up and wound things up and left us to finish them. That on the cross, he doesn't say it has begun, but it is finished. And it stands merely to be received through the empty hand of faith by all those whom you've chosen and give life to by the Spirit of God. Father, I pray that you would give life by the Spirit of God this morning, that those who don't know you, those who are strangers to the realities of the cross that we celebrated for the last hour, that they would become partakers by the supernatural regeneration of the Spirit, by the granting of the gifts of repentance and faith, that they would see in Christ all the perfect suitability of a savior who has accomplished salvation and put all their hope and trust for righteousness before you in him and in him alone. And I pray that those of us who know you would, would know the riches of what you've accomplished on our behalf, that we wouldn't have vague notions of Christ, vague notions of the cross, that there wouldn't be blurry pictures of Calvary in our heart's mind,
but that we would see with contour and definition and exactness and precision what it is that our Savior did for us and that we would worship you for what you've done and not for what we've reimagined you to do and that we would see glory in the unlimited efficacy, not glory in inefficacious breadth. That the, the cross is so great because it, it's, it extends so far. No, the cross is so great because it accomplishes everything necessary for those for whom precisely it was intended. Grant that we would worship you for, for that gospel, that salvation. Help us to, to think of you rightly. To declare the gospel truthfully. That your people might come in and experience your salvation. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. For more information about the ministry of the Grace Life Pulpit, visit at www.thegracelifepulpit.com. Copyright by the Grace Life Pulpit. All rights reserved.